Welcome to episode 23 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we left off talking about how the United Front policy in which the Communist Party worked within the Guomindang, or Nationalist Party, had paid off to the benefit of both organizations, but that the success had also increased tensions between the two parties. We've been talking about the United Front for some time, and one of the features of this strategy that has come up repeatedly is the way in which the Communist International had pushed the Chinese Communists into adopting this strategy. One of the dangers in talking about the Communist International's role in determining this strategy is that one can get the impression that the Chinese Communists themselves were passive or that they merely carried out orders from Moscow, and that they didn't have ideas of their own. So while I think it's been necessary, for the sake of historical accuracy, to talk about the the way in which the United Front strategy originated in Moscow, what I want to do in this episode is to take a step to the side and show some of the thinking that was going on with communist thinkers in China itself. It's particularly useful to compare the intellectual trajectories of the two founding figures of Chinese communism, Li Dajiao and Chen Dushu. This is because they diverged more and more in their outlooks, and the divergence between them is illustrative of deeper divisions in Marxist thought that would come to the fore in later years. All the way back in January 1920, Li Dajiao had put forward a concept which we'll call the proletarian nation theory. Basically, Li theorized that China was different than the classical cases of capitalist economic development, which Marxist theory had mainly concerned itself with, because rather than arising from internal causes, the economic changes happening in China resulted from foreign countries coming in and exploiting China. In Europe, The proletariat was only oppressed by their national capitalist class, but in China, the foreign powers oppressed the whole Chinese people, or at least the vast majority of them, excepting the few collaborators who had sold out their country. The oppression was therefore much more severe, and what followed was that, quote, the whole country had gradually been transformed into part of the world proletariat, end quote. So, If some people argue that China had such a tiny industrial working class and therefore couldn't have a socialist revolution, Li argued that this didn't matter because the whole country stood as exploited proletarians in the context of an interconnected global economy. Li was making an important argument about how he saw the possibilities for revolutionary consciousness to develop in the minds of people. At the time that Li wrote this article in which he advanced his theory of the proletarian nation, most other Marxists would have argued that only the industrial working class was amenable, as a class, to developing an understanding of the need for a socialist revolution. I specify as a class because individuals from any class were understood to be able to make this leap in their thinking, but in talking about large groups— Most Marxists at the time, and I think a great many would today as well, would argue that only the industrial workers would be amenable to this sort of leap in consciousness. 
And because China had a very small, although growing, industrial working class, mainly concentrated in coastal enclaves, although also on railroads and in mining centers, most Marxists would have said this meant you couldn't have a socialist revolution in China. Li basically was saying, well, let's look at China's position in the world as a whole. If we see the world economy as globally interconnected, and we look at the position of the Chinese people in that economy, then basically the Chinese people are all in the position of exploited proletarians, regardless of whether they're a worker or a farmer or a merchant or a scholar official. And so there's the potential here for us to have a socialist revolution. Now, this had a certain resonance with ideas coming out of the Soviet Union, which drew on the experience of having a socialist revolution in a largely peasant country like Russia. We talked in episode 15 about the new ideas coming from the Communist International and from Lenin and Stalin about the possibilities for revolution outside the industrialized countries. Li's ideas were different. For example, he was much more optimistic about the possibilities of communist consciousness developing outside of the working class than Lenin and Stalin were. But there was clearly a great strategic resonance and a broader theoretical affinity between the ideas of Li Dajiao and the new ideas coming out of the Soviet Union. None of this is to say that Li was not concerned with the urban workers. He certainly was. As we discussed in episode 13, he and his students were at the forefront of the Beijing intellectuals who went out to try and unite with the workers who became mobilized during the May 4th movement. And as we discussed in episodes 18 and 19, when the Communist Party decided that its strategic orientation following its founding in 1921 should be on organizing the working class, this was a position that Li hardly took up. But whereas some members of the Communist Party, such as Chen Duxiu and Zhang Guodao, saw the overall mission of the Communist Party as being to lead a revolution of the working class, Li's broader conception of the Chinese nation as a whole being proletarian meant that while Li was happy to focus on workers, he would also later be just as happy about the prospect of organizing other sections of the population such as the peasantry. Fundamentally, Li saw the struggle of the Chinese people for their liberation from oppression by foreigners as being part, objectively, a part of a global revolution against a capitalist world system. And as part of making the case for this position, Li drew on several articles that Marx and Engels had written about China back in the 1850s. Of particular importance to Li was Marx's 1853 article titled Revolution in China and in Europe, which began as follows. A most profound yet fantastic speculator on the principles which govern the movements of humanity was wont to extol as one of the ruling secrets of nature what he called the law of the contact of extremes. Here, uh, Marx is referring to the German philosopher Hegel, I'm not sure how many newspaper readers in 1853 got the reference. Uh, this, by the way, is a, a common rhetorical device that Marx uses when writing his newspaper articles. And it sometimes feels like Marx didn't think that world events themselves 
necessarily merited comment unless they could be connected to a more universal concept, such as in this case Hegel's idea of the contact of extremes. But anyways, that's a discussion for another time. Uh, Marx continues, The homely proverb that extremes meet was, in his view, a grand and potent truth in every sphere of life, an axiom with which the philosopher could as little dispense as the astronomer with the laws of Kepler or the great discovery of Newton. Whether the contact of extremes be such a universal principle or not, a striking illustration of it may be seen in the effect the Chinese Revolution seems likely to exercise upon the civilized world. Here Marx is referring to the Taiping Revolution, which we discussed in episodes 3 and 4. It may seem a very strange and a very paradoxical assertion that the next uprising of the people of Europe and their next movement for republican freedom and economy of government may depend more probably on what is now passing in the celestial empire, the very opposite of Europe, than on any other political cause that now exists, more even than on the menaces of Russia and the consequent likelihood of a general European war. But yet it is no paradox, as all may understand by attentively considering the circumstances of the case. Whatever be the social causes, and whatever religious, dynastic, or national shape they may assume, that have brought about the chronic rebellion subsisting in China for about ten years past, and now gathered together in one formidable revolution the occasion of this outbreak has unquestionably been afforded by the English canon forcing upon China that soporific drug called opium. Before the British arms, the authority of the Manchu dynasty fell to pieces. The superstitious faith in the eternity of the celestial empire broke down. The barbarous and hermetic isolation from the civilized world was infringed, and an opening was made for that intercourse which has since proceeded so rapidly. Uh, I'll stop quoting from uh, Marx's article there. The article goes on to discuss the ways in which the integration of China into the capitalist world system might reverberate back on England and the rest of Europe and contribute to the development of a revolutionary situation in Europe. Li Dajiao placed great importance on this article and on others that Marx and Engels wrote about developments in China during the Taiping Revolution. Here's how Li interpreted the importance of this article and others like it in his own words. After reading this article by Marx, we ought very clearly to recognize that in both theory and fact, the Chinese revolution is part of the world revolution. The pressure of English imperialism on China has created the Chinese revolution, and the Chinese revolution has in turn influenced England and, through England, Europe, and thus has a role in the world revolution. The Taiping Revolution, which occurred during Marx's lifetime, was like this, and today the explosion of the whole Chinese nation in the era of the anti-imperialist movement is also like this, and it will be like this until the world revolution is completed. The manifestation of China's role is daily becoming more obvious, and the tendency for the Chinese revolution to urge on the world revolution is increasing day by day. Since the revolution of the Taipings, the main tide of the Chinese national revolutionary movement 
has generally been pushing forward unceasingly. The imperialist oppression of the Chinese nation has intensified day by day, and therefore the Chinese national revolutionary movement has day by day become stronger, because the only reply to oppression is resistance, and the only response to the order with which they repress us is for us to resist their violence, and this means revolution. According to the courtesy of gifts ought to be exchanged, disorder should be transported from China to Europe and all the imperialist states. If the imperialists intervene in the movement of the Chinese masses, then, as Marx so well put it, this will only cause the Chinese revolutionary movement to become increasingly militant and hasten to end the commercial enterprises of the powers in China. It has been 73 years since Marx wrote this article. Since then, the Chinese revolutionary movement has day by day grown broader, and the crisis of Europe has grown ever more severe. In the last two years, the development of the proletarian political parties of China and England has had the character of traveling 1,000 li in one day, and in the competition of all the national proletarian movements of the world, they have progressed the most. Now, at the same time that the Chinese national revolutionary movement has spread throughout the whole country, the English workers have called an unprecedented strike of a million men. Is this not the phenomenon of China returning to the West, the violence that has been brought to us by the order imposed by the armies and warships of the English bourgeoisie? Is not the Chinese revolution the spark that will set off the landmine already planted in the overproduction of the European economic system? Is this not about to produce a gigantic explosion? In the revolution that is imminent, this historic fact will be proved. There are two aspects of this theory of Li Dajiao's that I would like to highlight. The first has to do with its content, and the second with his approach to utilizing Marxist theory. In terms of content, there's an undeniable nationalist element to the proletarian nation theory. But it's not pure nationalism. Li moves back and forth between class and nation, discussing the Chinese nation as a proletariat in world context, and at times making statements such as, only the proletariat is the vanguard of the national revolution, which he said in 1924 in the midst of the political struggles within the Guomindang between communists and anti-communists, which we discussed in our last episode. At the end of the day, when Li's political writings and activities are all taken as a whole, it becomes clear that he was much less interested in the actual class composition of any given political movement and more interested in the subjective aims of the movement and in the overall effect that the movement was having in society or the world. Clearly, Li did not see consciousness as something that was determined in an immediate way by one's social class or at least he didn't see the consciousness that was shaped by one's immediate social position as being something which couldn't be changed. This was an important theoretical leap for Marxists who would eventually lead a revolution relying largely on peasant forces. As one might guess, this also meant that Li was relatively open to the idea of uniting with other Chinese political groups, such as the Guomindang, which did not base themselves on the proletariat. Chen Dushu claims that all leading Chinese communists, including Li Dajiao, 
opposed the idea of communists joining the Guomindang as part of the United Front strategy when Mering presented them with the Comintern's orders to do so in August 1922, as we discussed in episode 19. But if this is true, it appears to probably be due to a natural reluctance to suddenly shift strategic course based on orders from abroad. And Mehring's abrasive and commandist style can't have won him any quick adherence. But it's also clear that Lee was quickly won over to the new strategy, if he did initially oppose it, which makes sense, because it was a strategy which fit well with his own views of the multi-class nature of the Chinese Revolution. In addition, he was well known as someone who could get along with everyone in the revolutionary movement, and so it was no accident that Lee was the one who set up the meeting with Sun Yat-sen, where Sun accepted the idea of inducting Communist Party members into the Guomindang. And Lee wasn't alone in this orientation. While in past episodes, we've emphasized the opposition to the United Front from within strategy, which was expressed by Chen Duxiu and Zhang Guodao, there was clearly a whole other set of party members who thought about the alliance in terms more similar to Lee. Most prominent among these was Mao Zedong. In March 1924, a Russian representative of the Communist Youth International, S.A. Dalin, reported that at a plenum of the Communist Youth League in Shanghai, Mao had put forward the idea that now that the Guomindang had adopted the version of the Three People's Principles drafted by the Comintern, as we discussed last episode, it was a revolutionary workers' party and should be admitted to the Comintern. Dalin also reported that Mao described the whole peasantry, rich and poor, as opposed to capitalism and foreign imperialism, and totally ignored the importance of organizing the workers. There's no other evidence that Mao said these things, so either Dalin misinterpreted what Mao said, or Mao quickly changed his views. But it does seem quite possible that Mao perhaps said something that Dalin interpreted in this light, even if it was an incorrect summation of Mao's actual views, and that this misunderstanding probably has something to do with Mao holding a more nationalistic and multi-class view of the Chinese Revolution, not dissimilar from or uninfluenced by Li Dezhao's proletarian nation theory. Now, leaving aside the question of the content of Li's ideas, or even if they were correct or if they are a legitimate way of developing Marxist theory or not, Li's development of the proletarian nation theory does demonstrate a willingness to adapt and modify Marxist theory to Chinese conditions, and to get pretty creative in doing so. Li wasn't just taking his understanding of Marxism and using it to schematically create a strategy or theory about the Chinese Revolution. He was willing to make a pretty big departure from Marxist norms and have the confidence to say this was how China fit into the world revolution. I think that Regardless of the actual correctness or incorrectness of the specific ideas which he came up with, this creative attitude and approach was ultimately very important in the success of the Chinese Revolution. The ideas that Mao Zedong would later develop and which would lead the Chinese Revolution to victory are different from those of Li, although Mao does share much of Li's revolutionary nationalism and his sense that revolutionary consciousness is not mechanically tied to class origins. But more importantly, 
Mao continued Li's tradition of creatively adapting Marxism to China's conditions, even against more orthodox and schematic ways of utilizing Marxism. Which brings us to Chen Dushu, whose thinking during the years of the United Front with the Guomindong had drifted in a much more pessimistic and deterministic direction. If you'll recall, Chen became a co-founder of the Communist Party precisely because he wanted to have a revolution like the Russian Revolution in China. He had tried a lot of things, none of them had worked, and he looked at Russia and saw what they had done and wanted to do that. Fundamentally, Chen started off wanting to have a socialist revolution in China. But by early 1923, there had been some very dispiriting developments, which we have covered in past episodes. But to sum them up, the big railway union that had been a major focus of communist labor organizing was crushed with the massacre of February 7, 1923. This massacre dealt a huge blow to the communist union efforts in and of itself, but it also highlighted the weakness of the communists as a political force and made it seem like they really did not have the organizational strength to stand up to repression by the warlords. This fact convinced Chen and many others to acquiesce to common turn demands that the overall communist strategy be shifted from working toward a revolution based on organizing workers and unions toward building a multi-class revolutionary movement with a key component of that strategy being having communists join the Guomindang. While Li Dajiao did not see a multi-class revolutionary movement being necessarily a retreat away from working toward bringing socialism to China, Chen Dushu saw things differently. Chen understood Marxism according to a much more orthodox way of thinking. According to his way of thinking, there were two types of revolutions. Bourgeois democratic revolutions led by the capitalist class and their political representatives, and proletarian socialist revolutions led by the working class and their political representatives. Essentially, Chen saw the defeat of the communist unionizing efforts as demonstrating the futility of working toward a socialist revolution in China. For Chen, the Guomindang represented the bourgeoisie, and so while what Chen wanted to do was to have a proletarian revolution— he reconciled himself to the fact, as he understood it, that historical conditions in China only allowed for a bourgeois democratic revolution to take place. Therefore, it was his job to further the bourgeois democratic revolution along, and China would have to wait for the development of objective economic and social developments before it could have a socialist revolution. In Chen's words at the time, quote, the objective strength of the proletariat expands with the expansion of the bourgeoisie. And thus, if the bourgeoisie of the colonial and semi-colonial areas are unable to form a successful revolutionary force, there's no point in talking about the proletariat. The economically and culturally backward countries are not injured by the development of capitalism, but rather by the lack of capitalist development. End quote. As we can see here, Chen was actually articulating a position very similar to the one which the Russian revolutionaries had opposed when they moved forward 
with their own socialist revolution in 1917. Whereas just a few years earlier, Chen had felt that the triumph of the Russian Revolution had showed that even a country with a small industrial proletariat, like Russia and China, could have a socialist revolution, he now was articulating a much more orthodox Marxist theory, which had much more to do with the economic determinism and conservatism of the Second International and Karl Kotsky than with the Marxism of Lenin and the Bolsheviks. That Chen had adopted this viewpoint, which is known as the theory of the productive forces, demonstrates the staying power of the old, non-revolutionary concepts of Second International Marxist orthodoxy. Indeed, as the years go on, we will see the Soviet Union pushing the theory of the productive forces on communist parties in the global south, often with disastrous results. In every case where strong local communist parties saw their main task as supporting bourgeois nationalist reformers so that eventually capitalism could create a large enough proletariat so there could eventually be a socialist revolution, such as with the governments of Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala and Sukarno in Indonesia, the result in the end was a massacre of the communists and their supporters and the imposition of brutal military regimes following U.S.-supported coups against the nationalist reformers. So, to sum up for now, we can see that inside the Chinese Communist Party in the mid-1920s, different leading figures held very different understandings of the United Front strategy which they were carrying out, and really very different understandings of the revolutionary possibilities for China. Chen Dushu was very pessimistic about the possibilities for socialist revolution, but kept soldiering on as the general secretary. Meanwhile, Li Dajiao had a very optimistic picture of the revolutionary potential of the Chinese people as a whole, and was less concerned about the lack of capitalist development or the size of the working class. Before I bring this episode to a close, I want to remind listeners that you can get in touch with me at hello at peopleshistoryofideas.com. We're covering some complex history and ideas here in a fairly compressed format, and if there's anything that isn't clear, I would be happy to expand or clarify on things in future episodes. And I really welcome hearing from listeners. Also, if you made it this far in the podcast, you probably are getting something from this. If you leave a review or a rating for the show, that will help other people find the show. So please consider doing that. All right. See you next time. Bye.